Welcome to the Captain's Podcast. My name is Elena Copley. Business for Development is an organization close to my heart and its project director, John Cook, is a man for whom I have the highest admiration. I am so deeply honored and more than slightly thrilled to interview John so many can hear of the truly exceptional work he has undertaken, including reinvigorating the cotton industry in Kenya, which is a remarkable feat. If you'll indulge me a personal insight, in a sun-filled room one midwinter afternoon in 2012, I was praying or asking the universe for direction, whichever you'd prefer to consider it to be. I had then recently stepped back from law after enjoying working in a top-tier law firm for many years including a special counsel in the Commercial Advisory and Major Dispute Resolution Group. Yet it was a Google search that revealed the existence of an organisation, Business for Development. I called its chairman, the thoroughly magnificent Simon McKeon, who was gracious in taking my call without notice. From that call, I cobbled together a table of 34 senior executives from the mining, mining support and construction industries to introduce Business for Development to the Queensland market. Immediately after the lunch that was so kindly hosted by KPMG, one of the guests, Simon Smerlick, who is now Chief Operating Officer at Asenko, made an introduction to the CEO of Base Resources. It was then a seemingly innocuous introduction, yet it was a catalyst that has changed the trajectory of the lives of many. Perhaps serendipitously, around the same time the exceptional John Cook was contemplating retirement. Instead, as you will hear, with his outstanding career that has included leading major businesses as CEO, including Kellogg's Australia, Kellogg's Europe, Golden Circle, Berry, and Australian Pork, John joined Business for Development. Soon after, he relocated to Kenya and since then has led, in a very immersive, practical, and hands-on way, the establishment of agribusiness projects that are now said to be transforming the lives of up to 200,000 people in rural Kenya. The projects are now expanding into other African countries and are replicable globally. Business for Development was established by half a dozen of the finest men who are leading captains of commerce. One of the aspects of Business for Development I adore is its dedication to elevating people in fairly dire circumstances in developing communities through the application of astute business principles with an abundance of generosity of heart. The example John has set with his clarity of focus and deep dedication to serving others with his technical skills and commercial acumen should be celebrated loudly. However, in his usual modest way, John is more likely to simply put on his straw hat and head out to the field to continue to work on further developing the projects of business for development in cotton, poultry, potatoes, sorghum, soybeans and grains for cattle, amongst others. Listening to John, I hope you're inspired, and I acknowledge how often that word is overused, but to be genuinely inspired by what can be achieved by one person with an immense depth of character, integrity, and decency, applying his outstanding capabilities, importantly, without pretense, to transform the lives of those amongst the world's poorest and most vulnerable. John, I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you, given your truly exceptional work, on behalf of Business for Development. What is the mandate and the objective of Business for Development? Well, well look, I, I think I could actually make this all very complicated and talk about poverty and things like that. But 
you know, what really motivates all of us is to fundamentally make a difference. Because inevitably, the, the people who we work with uh, are confronting a large number of ingrained systemic problems that take a while to un unravel and provide and find solutions to. So I guess that really is the remit for B4D is to actually um, engage to the depth that is required for the period that is necessary to truly make a difference. In alleviating extreme poverty. Yes, well, look, I, I think we inside the business are actually spending a fair bit of time uh, on that at the present moment. Yes, it is a characteristic of the, the people we work with, but equally, they're living within secure communities, okay? And the perception from the outside is that we could probably make judgments about, you know, how we would prefer to see their lives, lives run, okay? So, and yet in many respects, you know, they, they, they have sort of dignity in what they do. Um, they live harmoniously with their community, but you know, there are inevitably challenges, you know, educating their children, um, parents feeling comfortable that their children will experience an easier life than they have. Uh, the whole notion of when there's a calamitous set of circumstances with health and they're not able to afford to gain access to either themselves or their family to the medical assistance it becomes a crisis. So, you know, look, I, I think we're trying very hard not to just sort of see this through the lens of extreme poverty. Um, the whole notion of the work we're doing is genuinely designed to actually make a meaningful difference to the individual and to the community circumstances. How did Business for Millennium Development, now Business for Development, come to be established? Well, well, look, I think this was, uh, I think this was a wonderful initiative by the Australian government, World Vision, a number of leading organisations like Telstra and Busy and Nestle. And uh, the intention was to actually explore whether business could actually uh, play a meaningful role in assisting communities with economic and social development. Um, I, I think as well, some of the backdrop to this was a lot of intellectual discussion about inclusive business and shared value were terms that were, were being bandied around you know, quite vigorously. And you know, I think this was an attempt to actually create an organization uh, with uh, the relationships amongst the, the sponsoring organizations and with sufficient budget to start exploring whether this sort of work could be done and roles could be found for business to make a meaningful contribution. You're one of the exceptional men I refer to as a captain of commerce. You've been the CEO of Kellogg's Australia, Kellogg's Europe, Golden Circle, Berry and Australian Pork. How did you become aware of business for development and how did you become involved in it? Okay, uh, look, interesting, interesting question. And, and look, um, I mean, through a career such as this, you invariably meet a lot of people and, you know, you, you, know, you I guess, get known by a number of headhunters for the work that you've done. And uh, one day I was approached by 
a one such individual and who was sort of inquiring as to whether or not at this stage you know, of my career, whether or not I would like to assist uh, a small NGO sort of build supply chains uh, in the developing world. And you know, I got to the point where you know, I'd actually worked in very structured and very successful organizations. I'd also been involved in actually tidying up uh, a number of very awkward problems. And I sort of felt that uh, at the stage I was with my career that I was a bit tired of actually inheriting other people's problems. And I sort of felt that, you know, maybe, you know, what I could do is, is actually uh, embark on a, an opportunity such as working with business for development to help communities actually, you know, make a meaningful difference for themselves rather than effectively get involved in a commercial organization and probably make a difference, but not necessarily have a meaningful association with the people you're effectively working with and for. So, so I guess I guess the real way to probably paraphrase this is that you know when you have the opportunity to do what I have done uh, with the fine organisations I've worked with, you get to a point where you feel sufficiently confident that you can actually make a difference. And um, and I think that's that was the realisation I had when I was approached by Carrie Ringwood, you know, to look at business for development. And it had come at a good time, and I sort of felt that I had the skills to truly make a difference. Very much so, rather than wandering into retirement and having your exceptional acumen not applied for the benefit of many as you otherwise have. Yeah. Setting up projects in a country in which you've not previously worked may be daunting for many. How did you go about it? And what were the first steps that you undertook? Was it to listen to the community or how did you approach it? Well, look, I guess uh, this actually goes back to my Kellogg experience. When as a young man, I, I had the opportunity to uh, build businesses across Asia for, for Kellogg. And as a young man being given the opportunity to go into Japan, you, know, you, you inevitably recognise that there are going to be limited number of things that I could do that the Japanese couldn't already do particularly well. So you realize very quickly that the best idea in this is not to really see yourself as competing, but to assist and to actually, um, you know, bring new approaches, new insights, and to sort of encourage uh, a spirit of sort of changing some perceptions about things. And whether it be the attitude towards ready-to-eat cereals in, in, in Japan, you know, we, when you're coming from Australia, that's one thing you clearly understand. And yet, very early on, uh, the franchise in Japan was was very, very small for Kellogg. But in the process of, of actually getting to know the community, um, listening to the people who'd worked in the business, and in actual fact, encouraging the adoption of international proven practices, it sort of led to being able to unlock uh the uh, sort of interest in the category by consumers and then ultimately the development of the business and i think that was that was really the the insight i took into my first pieces of work in africa recognizing that i was here to assist i was not here 
to make judgments. I was there to listen. I was there to understand and empathize with the problems and to use insights and experiences that I'd, I'd absorbed uh, working elsewhere to possibly make that difference. And uh, I have to say that it has worked, you know, wonderfully, you know, the partnership that we are developing with so many fine institutions, organizations, and uh, you know, governmental agencies in Kenya um, have made the work not only very effective, but you know, very pleasant to, to, to do. The Cotton Project was the first major project of business for development in Kenya. How did you establish it? And where did you start and with what funding? Okay, uh, uh, an interesting question. Look, uh, I think um, we were asked by base, base titanium, base resources to assist them sort of understand how they might be able to build a very strong relationship with the surrounding community. Um, you know, base could only ever employ say 700 people from the community to be on their mind site but they recognized that they were surrounded by many thousands of people who couldn't be offered a job. But, um, you know, I think uh, Tim Carstens and Colin Forbes recognized that if they were to sort of embrace agriculture, then they could be actually passing benefits to everybody in the community because most people, one way or another, either were actively involved in agriculture or benefited from it. So, um, our initial exercise was to, to go into Kenya and have an understanding of um, what the community effectively were interested in growing, uh, to draw some conclusions about whether or not that there were better ways and areas in which we could assist them to do, do the job more effectively. And at the same time, um, also think about you know, what of the things that they were growing that there were potential markets for internationally. Now, uh, one of my very early conversations with one of the farmers was the strong interest in growing cotton. And we asked this farmer, his name was Senator, you know, Senator, why is it that you were so interested in cotton? And he was saying, well, look, we find that cotton with its root structure has a capacity to break up the soil. The, the taproot for cotton can go down two meters. In a situation where many of the farmers were using oxen and wooden plows, actually um, disrupting the soil and the layers of the soil with a crop such as cotton makes some sense. So cotton was something that we were requested to look at very carefully. And it just so happened that you know, prior to our first trip into Kenya, we'd had some very successful conversations with Cotton On about you know, how we might be able to assist them in sourcing cotton for their global supply chain. So Cotton emerged because a farmer thought it was a good idea for a reason other than the market. And Cotton On was suggesting there was interest in the product because they would like to put uh, what they would be regarding ethical cotton into their clothing, which they were selling globally. And you were the incredible force that brought those two elements together. Well, and look, if you think about it, you know, this is the, the challenge that most people have when they try to make a supply chain work is 
is actually having people interested in actually growing it or producing it. And then at the other end of the supply chain, having someone saying, well, if you could do it, I'm going to buy it. So, and, and certainly when you're dealing in the developmental context like this, um, it's usually the bit in the middle that creates the problem for the either the pricing at the end or the margin that the farmer enjoys. And the work that B4D does is actually completely redesigns the supply chain to optimize returns to the farmers and at the same time create a competitive offering in the hands of the customer. And before Business for Development's program started, what were the challenges of the cotton industry in relation to the supply chain? Well, look, if we go back, uh, cotton once upon a time in Kenya was a hugely successful successful industry. And it, it probably reflected the fact that uh, the British did a, a very good job of, of assisting the community to get involved in, in cotton and presumably had all of the policy settings to encourage the development of not only people growing the cotton, but then all of the processing industries, the, the ginneries, the spinning works, the textile mills, and the factories making clothing that uh, add, inevitably add significant value beyond just merely growing uh, and transporting the cotton, the raw cotton. Now, um, I guess some of the figures in this is that at its height in the 70s and 80s, there were 54 textile mills. There were 22 ginneries, numerous spinneries. One third of people involved in manufacturing employment were engaged in somewhere in the manipulation and trans and, and the uh, and, and I guess the incorporation of cotton into a finished product, whether it be yarn or a textile or a piece of clothing. So look, I, I think uh, what we then faced um, when we we sort of visited uh, Kuali and Akunda in 2012 was, um, I guess, the, the remnants of what was once a very successful industry. The, the 22, uh, 22 guineries were down to four with barely any form of utilization. The 200,000 farmers were barely a couple of thousand farmers. And no one really was at that stage meaningfully employed uh, producing the yarn, the textiles, nor even the clothing. So you actually had memories, uh, pleasant memories of many farmers who had um, experienced cotton previously. There were a, a clear understanding historically of the significance of the industry but little, if any, interest at the, the farmer level of effectively being involved in the industry. In establishing the cotton project, how did you overcome the community's subsistence farming mindset? Okay. Um, well, see, look, I think at the end of the day, cotton was not just simply the only ingredient in that. Um, uh, the, the, the challenge the farmers were having is that uh, more often than not, they've only got a couple of acres uh, to use to grow their produce. And because I, I guess they were trying to you know, mitigate the risks, they were attempting to grow many things, recognising some might fail. So they had to avoid uh, effectively putting too many eggs in one basket. 
So it was not uncommon that uh, a person during you know, the, the major growing period would be trying to grow 13 individual crops on a couple of acres. And inevitably, uh, the scale of that was never going to work. And the inevitable difficulties associated with doing all that work at once uh, was always going to be difficult, and if not virtually impossible. So one of the things we, we recognised we needed to do was to actually demonstrate a different approach to the farmers. And it wasn't we were going to insist we do it on their properties. What we felt we needed to do was actually have a demonstration site where we ran pilots. You know, we piloted potatoes and we piloted cotton in the first season. Now, we knew both those were perfect rotation partners for each other. And the intention of actually running five acres of each was to actually be able to sort of bus farmers to see what would happen when you actually started to cultivate crops such as those in large, you know, in large acreages or larger acreages. In addition to that, as we were running our pilots, we uh, worked with the Kuali government and they suggested five farmers to, to us to also grow both tobacco, to grow the cotton and also the potatoes. And uh, the, the test there was to make sure that uh, we had the capacity to demonstrate to the community on our sites that we could grow these products and crops. At the same time, whether or not we could actually perfect the uh, extension and the training so that farmers could also replicate the same sort of results. So maybe too many words to effectively say, the way we fixed this was to actually, through the demonstration sites and incorporating five lead farmers for each group uh, drawn from the community to demonstrate to their neighbours that this were, these were crops and these were techniques that were worth duplicating and um, executing, executing on their own farms. And did you encounter challenges associated with farmer labour, with gender roles and engagement? And if so, how did you overcome them? Okay, that's an excellent question, uh, Alina. Look, um, we, we recognised very early on we had to be very, very cautious, um, actually approaching what is a very conservative, conservative community. Uh, very proud of their traditional approaches. And uh, I think it probably had a succession of bad experiences with other people um, you know, giving them notions on how they might be able to uh, do life on a different basis than they've traditionally been running it. So um, we, in the process of, of doing the demonstration sites, um, actually held a number of community meetings. We would go around the community and under the big mango trees actually talk about you know, the different approaches that um, we see that we could actually be implementing with them and seeking their interest in participating, participating with us. Now, when we first started, we probably had 98% men attending and the odd woman um, on the edge of the edge of the discussions. When we 
when we when we signed farmers and we started to work with increasing number of farmers, we found women were increasingly getting involved in the activity in the field. Okay, um, we then started to encourage families to actually come the the men and women to actually attend the meetings, so everyone got the benefit of the training and everyone got the benefit of the information. So today, you know, where it was 98% men and 2% women, it's now almost 50-50. We also um, gave us the opportunity when surveying the farmers and farmer families, we, we discerned that there were genuine roles for women to be played. Um, I can share a story we had with potatoes that we were actually having uh, an opportunity to harvest potatoes. Um, the husbands were, were beaving or away, beavering away, putting the potatoes into bags. And we then had to indicate to the farmers that, look, this was good, but you know, this is, they will spoil unless they're taken to market. And uh, do they have some thoughts in terms of how they might be able to achieve that? Um, with a little bit of coaching, we suggested that maybe there was an opportunity to actually sell them in the local produce markets. Um, the problem then was who would actually do the selling and with a bit more prompting, uh, we actually got the husbands to recognize that their wives were perfectly able to represent them in the market selling this produce. So today the potatoes we grow in Southern Kenya are now grown by the husbands and successfully sold and marketed by the wives. And so to change that entire social dynamic. And it's immensely, you know, immense pride for the women because the fact that they can show that their husbands are cleverer than most because once upon a time a potato, potatoes would cost something like 70 shillings a kilogram because they were coming from up country. They were effectively being sold for 52 shillings in the in the village markets. That was a significantly better price than the 28 shillings they would have got selling to a wholesaler. Um, the, the the customers at the village markets were getting a good deal, saving you know obviously something like 12 or 14 shillings per per kilo, and inevitably the potatoes were better anyway for the fact that. They were grown locally, they were fresh, uh, they weren't damaged with complicated logistics and transport. That's just one example of, of, of how we've sort of not tried to confront uh, the potential awkward subject of um, gender uh, roles within the household and confronting some of those more traditional uh, sort of sensitivities. Now, I guess if we could go down one more rabbit hole uh, on this one, we, we got very close to DFAT uh, when we were again running our, our cotton program in 2016-17. And we were fortunate enough to have visitors from DFAT and Palladian and also the, the High Commissioner from Australia in, Ken, in, in Nairobi visit. And at this stage, we, we, we had the the board of Pavi and many of the the, the directors uh, actually had wives actively involved in either our poultry programs or in our potato program. 
the High Commissioner actually had the opportunity to have a panel discussion first with the men and some directors of, of uh, Parvi Cooperative. And, uh, and she asked, you know, now I understand your wives are now actively involved, actually earning income for the family. This must be a huge thing, must be a big difference. Uh, what do you men think about this? And there was deathly silence. And then uh, the four of them who had wives doing this almost at the same time said, yes, it's different, but it is really good. And so the High Commissioner said, well, why is that? And uh, the men said, well, effectively, our wives are so much happier making a contribution. It's fantastic. So, I know. And so th this, is th this is the magic of doing this. You know, you, you start out to effectively make a difference, you know, in terms of uh, poverty or all the rest of it. But fundamentally, there's just so much more to this, such as that insight. And what have the been enhanced impacts? So there is the physical availability of food, and then there's the income, and then there's how that income is spent. So then there are opportunities for education for children, but then also a sense of well-being and security and safety what are the added enhancements? And you're far more knowledgeable than I. Okay, yeah, let, let me give you let, let me give you an example of what you're getting at there. Okay, um, now when I first when I first got to Kuali, I was I, I was significantly impacted with some very awkward uh, awkward interpretations on levels of nutrition for young children. Okay. And um, on questioning, it was quite clear that there was a massive problem with protein availability for, for kids. And I, I then started to ask, you know, where are we with poultry? You know, um, is there anyone doing poultry, you know, eggs, meat, so on and so forth. And uh, we were told that there used to be a very successful industry, but through the of the high cost of stock feed, it had basically lapsed. And so no one really could actually make an income on it. So therefore, uh, nobody was really continued to participate. So at that stage, I, I, I took a sense that in our longer run program, we needed to confront this. And in the process of thinking about stock feed, I recognized that uh, the stock feed was going to actually put uh, some demand on the smallholder farmers to potentially grow the ingredients for the community to go into that stock feed. So beyond the potatoes and beyond the cotton, suddenly there's a role for sorghum and soybeans and cowpeas and pigeon peas and green grams and corn. All these things can actually be worked into stock feed. Now, uh, that's what we did. And so we recognized that it's all very well understanding that we then needed to work with uh, Sydney University's vet school to understand how we might be able to address the I guess the um, the inevitable disease load that might be uh, experienced in Kenya with Newcastle disease and coccidiosis and things like this so um, we were ably assisted by uh, the vets the vet school and we then spent uh, three years uh, perfecting 
and finding the ideal genetics, actually proving uh, the diets for the birds as they as they as they grow, and at the same time also using those trials to to train farmers in the upkeep and, and maintenance of, of, the, of the birds and the flocks. Now, um, the other the component to our program then was as we finished a trial of maybe a thousand birds, we would then actually um, recruit people from the, the communities to be a recipient of small flocks. Okay, so what we'd have, we'd have 500, 500 hens and 500 cockerels. So what we did is we actually created 100 small flocks of five, five hens and one cockerel and gave them to 100 village family members. Okay, now where I'm going with this is there was one such family where a woman uh, was struggling with a husband that was very abusive, who was prone to actually either drink or gamble the earnings that the family were, the meager earnings that the family were deriving. Um, we recruited her into the poultry program and she embraced this wholeheartedly. And today this woman is earning over $1,000 a month from her poultry operations. That is just and, exceptional. And but that you didn't stop when you... Birds. From six birds. From six birds. And that's the thing, as I understand it, that poultry is general, generally regarded and chickens are regarded as a woman's bank so that she can rear them and she can sell the eggs or she can use the eggs to feed her family, whereas men, they have responsibilities for and are given the larger cattle and they're given the goats. So that's where there are programs like the Kaima Foundation that has had such an exceptional focus on vaccinating chickens against Newcastle disease. How do Business for Development's poultry programs vaccinate chickens? And particularly given that there's that smaller scale rather than a, a mass production of poultry. Okay, well, you know, that, that was part of our, that was part of the program we had to develop when we were doing our trials. You know, what, what, what approaches are smallholder farmers comfortable adopting? And it's eyedroppers, you know, and we, we have a regimen of Newcastle inoculations, you know, um, have actually been uh, sort of ingrained into the community now in terms of, uh, the period when you do it, you know, day olds and few, you know, and then out two other two other inoculations, you know, early in the in the bird's life. So these things were were sort of bedded down through the trial and error. Equally, we recognised that the birds were actually going to have to coexist within the village environment. So we actually had to sort of work out the other uh, other mechanisms by which. The, the household would be able to look after the birds to provide the housing and also allowing, allowing the birds to actually forage for a component of their food. So the work we had to then do with our, with our stock feed was, was an augmentation of what the birds could commonly get when foraging for, for 20 to 30% of their food, you know, whilst actually free ranging. Now, another component of this was that because as you said, uh, the small animals were seen to be uh, more uh, more
more suited to, to women. Um, we then started to actually work with the women in terms of how we could actually get the money into their hands. Uh, so the beauty of Kenya is we have Mapesa, and so uh, the, the mobile phone network actually provides the equivalent of a capacity for banking and funds transfer. So as women were engaged in the activity of generating income off poultry or cotton, potatoes, sorghum, soybeans, whatever it was, uh, we were working uh, with a small local bank to actually facilitate the transference of the money into their Mepesa accounts so the women actually had the opportunity to control completely how they spent the money that they were bringing into the household. Thus, you know, negating some of the awkwardness that again would have been there uh, if they had been completely dependent on men and if the men had actually been more actively involved in the whole activity of what it is that the woman was doing you know, with us and on behalf of the family. And as always, it's important to have a focus at an early stage on the end stage of the supply chain, and you've mentioned cotton on, just considering the different elements of the cotton industry. So there's the raw cotton, the cotton lint that had been returned to farmers. Then there's the cotton seed, which was processed by downstream third parties originally, and that was valuable to them, not to the original farmer. And then there was the seed cake. So it was protein-rich animal feedstock, but that really wasn't providing an income for the farmers. How did you recalibrate the cotton industry over there to provide better returns for the farmers? Okay, so the trouble with cotton is that you know, the lint, sell, I think um, selling the lint just merely covers the cost of sort of growing the seeded cotton. The real value is actually in the margin is derived by, as you said, um, selling the edible oil and also uh, actually selling the seed cake, which results from oil ex extracting the oil from, from, from the seed. Now, what we recognised early on that uh, the seed cake was uh, going to be a potential, potential asset to us when we were going to be building uh, the poultry stock feed. And it turned out that we could be we could use about eight percent, you know, in the formulation for, for for the poultry feeds, and the remainder could be very easily sold to into other markets such as to feed cows, you know, dairy industry and feedlotting. So, uh, at a thousand dollars a ton for the oil and three hundred and twenty dollars US for the seed cake, you know, the sixty. 64% in weight of the seeded cotton is the seed. So that ends up being a very valuable extension to the $2 that you might get per kilogram for the, the lint, which is only 34% of, of the... Uh, of the That's incredible. Cotton. Could you just run those figures again? So ordinarily, the farmers would have been receiving revenue just from the cotton lint, but then you then completely amplified their revenue streams by providing a value from the other components. Well, you see, look, and look, I think this was the insight that we derived very early on that the B4D's value to, to Kenya and helping resuscitate the cotton industry was this very, was this very fact. 
it was recognizing the implicit relationship between cotton, poultry, and the bridge between the two being stock feed. And that in actual fact, if if the if the community could control the the relationship between those three things, then they were in a very strong position to not only get fair returns for what they were doing with cotton, the byproducts of the cotton process could either be a medium of edible oils for the family in their cooking, and it could be a an input into the feed that they would need to actually gain access to, to resuscitate or to redevelop the poultry industry. So the families had access to eggs, surplus birds, and income by selling surplus birds uh, in local markets. The cotton lint is a traded commodity, but you know, right now it's around about, say a dollar 90 US uh, per, per kilogram, okay? Now, um, the edible oil, 8% uh, of the seeded cotton is probably going to be edible oil, and that you can get $1,000 a tonne for. Okay, now, the other thing is it's perfectly suited to, uh, to be used as biodiesel. So there are people who do use this as a source of, of fuel for uh, their bro boilers or, and such like. Um, we understand that the British Embassy in Nairobi uses cottonseed oil as, as biodiesel. Now, and the, the seed cake, which obviously would be something that would be normally sort of set aside, uh, is an incredibly valuable uh, substance for, for, for stock feed, particularly, you know, large animals. You know, it can be used with poultry, but you know, in many places, certainly in sort of northern Australia, it's actually an ingredient of choice for many of the people who uh, have finishing animals in feedlots. So, given that impact and the financial impact, what was the original investment, if you can say or give a range, of base resources starting out from such modest beginnings? And what's the impact in terms of the number of people that Business for Development's projects are now said to be reaching and what that's in about an eight-year period? Okay, well, now, uh, there's, there's two ways to answer this one. In terms of the, in terms of the base program, you know, when we started, we were working with four or five farmers doing, doing trials. Um, we're, now, we're now touching thousands of farmers with our programs. Our poultry programs have become huge, touching thousands and thousands of people. Now, what's probably more exciting is uh, very early on in our cotton program, we were approached by the Fibre Crops Directorate to say, you know, what it is, what are we doing with cotton? You know, the, the Kenyan government does not put a priority on cotton. And we said, look, um, similar to what I said uh, earlier on in our conversation, you know, we were, we were asked to do this by farmers who felt that there was value to cotton in terms of preparing their sites. So bear with us, you know, we'll, we have a customer and we'll come back to you if we find that it works, okay? So we, we in Fiber Crops built a very constructive relationship over a five-year period where 
we were significantly growing the number of people who were growing cotton. Our cotton quality was improving from season to season. And we were having some good success actually getting it into cotton on's uh, cotton on supply chain. That then led to uh, the president of Kenya, President Kenyatta, actually making cotton one of his big four agenda. Really? Effectively saying, as I was saying earlier on, given the, 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 the pride that the Kenyan community had in the prior cotton industry, there was an awakening that maybe the B4D approach is actually solving the problem that beset the industry at the outset. The first of them being that farmers were not getting a suitable return. The work we were doing, actually increasing yields, deriving value from seed, was giving them added confidence. The fact we had a customer in cotton on was giving them added confidence. And importantly, this whole notion of, of actually being able to take the, the, the byproducts of growing cotton, the seed, and then spawn the development of another industry that they too could be benefiting from and participating in actually led to significant interest um, with the Kenyan government. So today, the little program we started in Kuali is now being executed across the rest of Kenya. That must be so incredibly satisfying. And I'm just thinking that when you were otherwise perhaps wandering into retirement and yet the genuine beneficial impact or any of those words, leaving everything aside, the power of one man and you and all of your commercial acumen, and that's one of the components that I adore most about business for development, is that it's not rattle a tin can a low level rats and mice approach to we want to help people, but not having the substance and the force to do it. Whereas under your leadership and the example that you give, and you're not someone, as I understand, to sit back from afar, but everything that I've heard over the years about your involvement is absolutely, you whack on your hat and you roll up your sleeves and it's being out there in the community to develop those relationships. But then you've also, as a captain of commerce, you've got the ability to be able to reach other organisations. So in terms of the Red Cross or any other organisations, and particularly it was just so astute and clever to be able to involve Cotton On at such a, an early stage. What were the other organisations that you have involved in the projects? Um, well, in actual fact, um, we, we call we coined, coined the phrase that we, we build an ecosystem to support our programs. Very and, much so. Uh, and in actual fact, I think Cotton, we've got sort of 30 odd entities are actually assisting us execute Cotton programs. You know, and, and many of them uh, are actually governmental agencies and regulators. Uh, it'll be actually people providing many of the inputs, you know, the the farm input suppliers, you know, the chemicals, the fertilizers, the manures, the people who actually do the soil testing work for us, you know, people who assist us with transport. You know, so inevitably, the way we look at this, Alina, is recognizing that we are, we are here as custodians to show them a new way. And we also need to leave a legacy of the infrastructure they need for them to execute the program in perpetuity. So the ecosystem is in itself 
an embodiment of actually making the whole program sustainable. And when we're choosing people to come into the ecosystem, we, we, we're very mindful of the fact that it's heavy, it's, it's hard work at the beginning and you have to have a real sort of belief in, in a positive outcome. But at the same time, should it work, this could be very meaningful business for the people who are at the pioneering end of it. Because look, fundamentally, Africa is made up of nothing but smallholder farmers in many respects. And in the event that we could be uh, assisting a farm chemical supplier to understand how to adjust their systems to suit that market could be a major insight in future growth for those organizations. And hence the reason why many of them assist us with their programs. You know, the stuff that we do, you know, we tightly focus around a small number of farmers and we spend the money necessary to demonstrate success. Governments love this. They, can't, they cannot make these judgments in picking winners. And yet we, within the way we structure our business, we can show them the value of these investments. So in discussions we've had with agricultural ministries, they get our program for the fact that we demonstrate best practice, which they can replicate without having to have done the R&D to prove the concepts. And I was just going to say, it's that replicability or the scalability, the ability to replicate not only in different parts of Kenya, as now seems to be being undertaken, but then also to be able to transfer that knowledge into other African countries, into other countries beyond Africa. So harking back to Zimbabwe, once being the food bowl of Africa, do you envisage that, and I know that there's been a change in the regime or perhaps not in essence, but do you envisage that there could be work in Zimbabwe or elsewhere? And yeah, what would it take? In actual fact, um, we are, we are, we're working in Mozambique and we're about to start working in South Africa. And I've had the wonderful opportunity to work with some wonderful Zimbabweans in both places. So it's inevitable we'll actually get involved in Zimbabwe. Um, uh, if for no other reason for the fact that we'll probably get dragged there because we've increasingly uh, been exposed to uh, men and women that uh, clearly um, are working in agriculture, but inevitably in other countries. Right? So probably not directly answering your question, but um, we're in the process. No, I'm just considering the, the impact with so many people. We're in the process right now of actually looking to employ a, a, a young Zimbabwean woman living in South Africa to help us with our program in South Africa. And tell me about the stories of the people that you have met and who are part of, who are your colleagues in implementing the programs there and then the people in the community. Who are some of, what are some of the stories of people that are particularly close to your heart for the impact that the projects have had on them? Okay, well, I think um, one of the very first farmers I met, a bloke called Peter Cassina, and he is probably the best example of a farmer on two acres with 13 crops. And, and poor Peter, you, know, you could sort of see he was sort of somewhat downhearted when I met him that nothing he was going to show me was going to be overly impressive and he wasn't particularly proud of any of it. So 
Um, we we recruited Peter into our programs because he was clearly looked up to by the rest of the community. Um, he was 70 year old and he'd actually had a long and it seems very successful career working with government as um, in the area of agricultural extension. Now, um, if you think about that and think about the challenges we were seeing on his farm, you have to wonder, you know, not why we weren't having the sort of problems we're having. But with that being said, we um, we actually brought uh, brought Peter in. We did soil survey work of his property. We gave him access to, uh, I guess, the mechanical preparation of his site. We gave him good seed. We closely monitored uh, what he did with his potato, and he also grew crop, grew cotton. Now, Peter actually did a beautiful job of growing potatoes and got an extraordinarily good yield. But, um, and he also had a very, very good cotton crop. Now, um, we, we were keen to actually get some photographs of farmers actually in the harvest process. So one afternoon when I was visiting, I, I got onto Peter and said, look, um, I'd like to take photos of you and Lucy whilst you're harvesting the crop. Uh, would that be all right? And he said, that would be fine. So I turned up and we were standing in the middle of his, his, uh, his cotton crop and he and Lucy were doing a fine job of harvesting and putting it into, into the cotton bags. And uh, we got some very, very nice, nice photographs, which many of which we continue to use in B4B. Now, uh, I felt that I was, I'd, I'd, I'd taken all the photos I needed. I noticed that there were many family members on the edge of the, of the edge of the crop, sort of waiting. So I sort of felt that you know, this was gonna be a family moment. So I started to withdraw. Everyone rushed into the middle of the, the field and uh, I was putting my camera equipment away. Then I turned around and I saw most of them in tears. Why is that? And I thought, and I thought uh, I've clearly done something wrong. You know, I've transgressed or uh, I've embarrassed the family in some way. So I went, I walked over and I apologized to Peter and Lucy. And I said, look, uh, I, I don't know if there's something I've done wrong here. And Lucy said, no, no, John, you've done nothing wrong. It's just that this is the first opportunity for our family to enjoy success. And how many were there? And this is Peter at a, as a 70-year-old. And it was four generations. And so they would have been generations who were born into poverty or born into modest circumstances, lived through it with limited hope of escaping it. And so you have had, it's those same words I come back to, it's that transformational impact yeah. on their lives so it's peter and uh you know the sort of family compound so there's there's the parents uh, he had uh, a son and a daughter there um uh, they had they had had children who were uh, and one of them in actual fact uh, had her own child so there were four generations uh, a baby in arms and uh, being the fourth fourth generation What's your favourite part of the work that you're doing? Uh, well, you see, Particularly after, after you telling that story, no doubt it's the... 
you were you were saying, well, you know, what is it, you know, John? You know, was this business of retirement? You know, did you would that have some appeal? And and look, the reality is, um, I've, I've spent most of my life being very busy and 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 sort of confronting problems and you know having the and, and challenging myself to to sort of do things and hopefully do them well. And um, I, I guess the thing that I've actually now reflecting on is, wouldn't it be dreadful that I chose just to sit on the couch and not to use the knowledge, the skills, and the context that that I've I, I now possess as a result of uh, the very fortunate career I've had, you know, working within so many you know wonderful companies that predominantly put breakfast foods, you know, on people's tables, you know, each morning. And in many respects, the, the sort of learning that uh, they've given me has actually brought me to a point where this work comes very, very easily when you, you know, you have the sort of confidence and you've seen so much of the sort of difficulties that uh, these people are experiencing, we've, we've sold elsewhere. It's just a question of, recognizing how you might be able to take that piece of knowledge or this particular technique and apply it to a new set of circumstances in a new community and i would i could not i could not i don't feel comfortable uh, <laughs> i would not feel comfortable sitting on a seat knowing i could still be making a difference somewhere else and what would be your advice to people of any age who are working and they have a degree of security and a degree of fulfillment, but they just have a sense that they are capable of more, they want to do more, they have a desire to do more. Where, what would be your advice to them? Well, and see, uh, look, I think um, Australian agriculture, uh, it's sort of a, a wonderful industry, you know. We've we've we as a community have just done so much in a relatively short period of time, you know, and we we lead in so many respects in so many in so many agricultural activities. You have to imagine that uh, we've got we we bristle with capacity to sort of help, you know, people in the developing world. Um, sort of grow their foods and perfect the techniques of how to get them successfully into market, um, taking advantage of, you know, sort of understanding how you can then start to add further value and drive growth of, of, of processing of those commodities, you know, to, to sort of follow along once you've actually got sort of reliable supply. So we have wonderful agriculture, you know, we, we we possess, we possessed a very diverse packaged goods industry that uh, I think uh, would provide lots and lots of sort of expertise and people with that expertise to to assist sort of programs such as the ones that B4D are doing in Africa right now. So anyone who has got to a point where they sort of feel that um, they would like to actually have a change. Uh, would like to actually take some of those skills, maybe these similar sort of contacts and capacities that you know I've actually been fortunate to be exposed to. You know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of opportunities 
uh, all across Asia and certainly all across Africa that uh, those skills could be well deployed and very uh, rewarding opportunities put in front of those people game enough to actually have a go. And the impact of Business for Development and the projects in Kuala, they had such a modest start and it was about simply starting a conversation. And I acknowledge the brilliance of KPMG who very kindly hosted a lunch and one of those attendees at the lunch was Simon Smerlick from Asenko. And it was Simon who took the proactive step of reaching out and to make the introduction to base resources. So it that's where I just think it's so exceptional that the impact for so many people now comes back to the relatively small and modest or seemingly modest actions of a few that were simply the catalyst. Well, well, definitely. Look, I, I think that was that was sort of a watershed for for B4D. Um, I think preparatory to doing the work in Kenya, that people were merely having intellectual debates about you know what were the principles of inclusive business. And the beauty of of what we've been I been able to do with Cotton On and base resources, base titanium, in Kenya is to actually start to demonstrate some of the practical elements of, of what inclusive business represents and uh, have given us a whole raft of, of sort of insights in terms of you know how you might be able to sort of do that and do it in a way that um, ends up uh, creating the outcomes that are sought and that is genuinely benefiting the smallholder farmers who are confronted with significant number of structural problems. And what would you like to see as the future for business for development and its projects? If you could reach any Australian organisation to involve it or any organisation internationally, really, what would you like to see established in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Okay, I, I get a good question. Look, the, the reality is uh, when all this was starting, you know, people felt that there was uh, some form of uh, corporate social responsibility notion to you know what B4D would do. Okay, the, the reality is though that people are now increasingly sort of aware that uh, that companies need to sort of justify their participation in many respects. Right? They need to have almost a license to operate within the community in which they 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 are involved. Now, um, I guess the we used to have the Millennium targets uh, and goals and now they've been replaced by the SDGs, the, the Sustainable Development uh, Goals. And you know, there's 17 of them and they go all the way from poverty through to gender and the whole notion of, of sort of driving economic development. So I think um, we increasingly are going to sort of see uh, organizations start to be judged in terms of you know, their performance against these sorts of measures. We also need to reflect the experience we've had with, with Cotton On, who are very much aware of the young men and women who actually go into their stores and buy the clothing, are increasingly interested in understanding where the lenders come from. They want to know that the, 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 the cotton is not come at the expense of a child's education. 
the fact that, in actual fact, the people working in the fields are there at their choice. And they have the capacity to uh, be paid appropriately, rewarded appropriately, and the freedom to come and go as they wish. They're not compelled to work under very difficult conditions. So, so I guess you know, there's the notions of modern slavery with the development of the SDGs, a whole notion of the transparency with which you know, companies now actually have to uh, exhibit towards their markets and their customers and uh, the rest of the, their stakeholders. I sense the sort of work that B4D does with very, very strong, clean intentions sort of leads the way for others. You know, we, we are never going to be big enough to be the single point of difference, but our programs can represent examples of what you might be able to do to actually make a difference. That, and as I say, that, that has been my, my driving motivation to, to make a difference, even if it is only to demonstrate to the Kenyan government not to give up on cotton. If it's to effectively say to, to Kenya, okay, we've now done the work with actually getting farmers to grow the cotton, now help me build again. So we actually fix what the problem was last time. The Gins were stealing the money from farmers, so farmers lost the interest in growing the cotton. If we have the Gin and it's owned by the farmers, then we've got to the next layer. Once we've got the Gin, let's find someone who can take our cotton and have it spun into yarn. We're doing that right now for, for, for cotton on. Once we've got the yarn, we've then got the material, the, the component we need to actually make fabric. And so once we've actually got fabric, we can then start saying, okay, now let's teach people how to make clothing and get that, get that into the global market. So today when a kilogram of seeded cotton is about 50 cents, that same kilogram of cotton, when actually put into a piece of clothing, transforms into a value in excess of probably $6. It's a wonderful transformation of an, an example of you start with a commodity and you end with a finished good. You've created layer upon layer of employment and you've generated substantial improvement in the revenue such that everyone in the supply chain is suitably motivated to perpetuate the effort. And I think that's one of the most admirable and fundamental elements of business for development's work is that there is a focus on the practical to go out there and to do it not to sit navel gazing and luxuriating in the theory of what may or may not be possible it has to be demonstrated there needs to be engagement and then that's where the example and the model of business for development has itself proven the value by being the demonstration from the smaller scale amongst farmers, but then to be enhanced to now be such an example across Kenya. Yeah, and look, I, I guess I also, you know, I, I think it's another test of the program is whether or not that you can actually take it elsewhere. You know, we, we've had good experience actually taking our cotton program into Mozambique. Um, we, uh, we have the opportunity now to actually start working with some, some grain crops in South Africa as a result of 
the work we have done with with Maze in, in Kenya. So, and you know, look, I think uh, there are very, very good signs that for, for B4D, that the growth in our business, but at the same time, I think it's it's good to sort of see that uh, we've now, because of the approach we've had with the agriculture, the formation of a cooperative, the way we've uh, created the credit mechanisms to, to assist cooperatives and farmers gain the inputs that they need. All this is methodology that is now being shared with other communities, other cooperatives, and hopefully, you know, other operatives, you know, working in our space. John, what are the purposes of the Pavi Kwale Farmers Cooperative and what has been its impact? Well, one of the things that uh, distinguishes our program, I think, was that we put the initial emphasis on working with individuals. But you then you then get to a point where you recognise too that you also have to assist the community protect the common interest. Because you know, if you could envisage a situation where farmers all growing potatoes, which are being harvested at exactly the same time, all going to market to talk to a small number of wholesalers, and they would be eaten alive in terms of the price that they would achieve. The farmer has no capacity for storage, so they become price takers. So well, part of our program was putting significant emphasis on saying it's all very well creating an ability for an individual to prosper, but we also have to be mindful of actually enabling the community to prosper. And that was the insight driving why we created the cooperative and why we work so hard to actually make sure that the, the community itself were um, totally committed to the concept of it. Okay? So that's the genesis of, of Pavi, and it's actually now the sort of vehicle that we'll own again. It has a business park. It makes the stock feed. It sells the stock feed. It buys ingredients and inputs from farmers and turns them into the, the products that farmers can actually you know, use to sustain uh, either their cropping activity or their, or their you know, I, I guess, their, their flocks of birds or maybe in time even the, the dairy cows that they'll have you know, in, in sheds. So uh, I think the whole notion is we also need to reflect on the needs of the community and the sustainability of the program because clearly people such as B4D and BASE might not be around forever and it was actually hoped that we took the time to create the situation where people in an organisation owned and controlled by the community uh, possessed these skills, these insights, and could actually replicate the sort of work that we were traditionally doing on their behalf. And that's what the cooperative is supposed to do. What has been the attitude of the local government and the Kenyan government to business for developments projects? Uh, a critical part of our program was actually, you know, working constructively with with government. Um, the, the first layer of government, we actually had to sort of uh, actually get to recognise that we had a role to play was, was going to be the county government. Uh, with the change uh, constitution in Kenya, agriculture was devolved down to the county level from the national level. So it was very important that 
you know, B4D and our programs actually caught the attention of the Minister of Agriculture in Kuali because you know, they actually had many resources that could actually help extend our application. You know, they had extension personnel, they had offices, they had warehouses, they had tractors. So we, it, it was critical to us to actually demonstrate that we actually had a role to play. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say that you know, some of the biggest supporters that we've experienced with our program have actually come from Kuali County government. And I think that also um, inspires confidence that as our programs are taken over the rest of Kenya, if those county governments were actually like prepared to act as Kuali County did, then the programs will obviously find sure footing and um, probably have the sponsorship necessary to grow quite rapidly within each of their you know, cotton or poultry or uh, sorghum or corn or whatever, you know, potato growing areas within their counties. What are the other projects established by Business for Development in the Kuala community? Um, another very, very good question. Uh, there were probably three things driving this one. Um, uh, you probably heard me mention uh, sorghum uh, in the context of stock feed, but we also uh, recognised that there were big challenges growing maize uh, within the community uh, because of the poor quality of the seed, the, the, the tendency to recycle seed from season to season, and um, you know maybe the, the, the changing climate meant that most most families were sort of struggling to get a viable crop with their maize, and maize was the predominantly the staple that they'd use to actually feed the family over the entire year. So if you did not have a successful uh, uh, maize or corn crop uh, during the the rainy season, then you as a family were you know, going to fall on pretty hard times and be very hungry for at least five months of the year. Now, we, we recognised that maybe sorghum could be an alternative to maize. And in many respects, the traditional foods could equally be made using sorghum uh, as well as using the sort of white maize. Um, so uh, we, uh, we had significant community interest in it. And in the process of, of actually doing further investigations, we found that um, one of the, the, the brewers in, in Kenya was also interested in getting white sorghum and actually using it for one of their, one of their beers. So um, we found that we were introducing sorghum and it was a wonderful thing for stock feed. It ended up being an incredibly valuable crop actually into the brewing industry. And it represented a wonderful alternative to the difficulties farmers were having with their maize crop. And in addition to that, um, there, is, there are challenges with aflatoxin uh, with maize and we're finding that you know, maybe uh, with the proper approaches to, to the drying and the harvesting of the sorghum, that that too could be one of the, the risks that you know, we confronted. You know, that, um, 
of farmers didn't necessarily actually have to be uh, potentially putting themselves and their family in harm's way with aflatoxin in their, in their grains, when in actual fact, if they put the emphasis on sorghum, then, then maybe they and all of the other consumers, including poultry, wouldn't be potentially put at risk. So there's the cotton, poultry, sorghum. Any other projects? Potatoes. Of course, potatoes, yes. And what training did you provide to the community in terms of agronomic practices? Okay, now, um, a couple of things here. Um, the level of education in Maso farmers is very low. Um, most have struggled to have you know, barely any ed education and most are illiterate and numerate. So our training is very much driven on hands-on in the field. Okay, um, To reinforce that in a sort of consultative format, we work within clusters of 25 to 30 farmers who are largely neighbours. So we have our extension personnel visit farmers and actually demonstrate the skills that they need in growing these crops. Okay? So... And we, we actually are now using a digital platform. Uh, we're using SourceTrace. And uh, young men and women are actually being trained in the agronomy and the use of the platform to assist farmers uh, solve their technical problems and to actually hit the timelines associated with doing the activities necessary to succeed and uh, maximise their, their yields. So, in the farm, on the ground, in clusters, hands-on, very tactile training, reinforced with uh, weekly visits by extension personnel, assisting them to make sure that they are hitting the timelines and doing the activities that are needed to optimise their yields. And tell me about Farm Force. Uh, Farm Force was, uh, we used that last year as our first, uh, our first experience with uh, a digital platform. And it proved to be, uh, it was invented in Kenya actually, and uh, it proved to be very, very helpful. We found that um, it wasn't quite as flexible as we needed it to be to capture the diversity of crops we're now working on and handling the complexity associated with, with growing cotton in particular. There are 15 steps you need to go through to succeed and to successfully grow a good cotton crop. And how does Farm Force operate? What we did is we, we've, we've layered the 15 steps into, into the screens for, 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 for source trace. So, so in other words, you, it, there's a process. You know, growing something is a process. You, know, you go from step to step to step. And we've actually built the digital platform to trace the steps associated with what do you do in each of those 15 steps to get to a successful crop. So then there's IP around that, that in terms of any replication, there's a value to what's being developed? You see, and this, is the, this is the thing about B4D. You know, we, we, we don't set out to create the IP for, for, our, own, for, for our own benefit. We... We actually hope that the approach actually inspires others to do likewise and to benefit their communities on the back of it. So no, we are in the process of preparing detailed schematics of everything we do. 
and we are happy to share those schematics with those that um, express an interest and um, express a desire to be to assist. It's such a magnificent model and really to genuinely lead by example to benefit others. It does, you know, and look, the, the other thing about this is that I have a lot of faith in this whole notion of the digital platform because two things, I guess. The first is that, you know, the old model of actually being able to afford to actually have extension personnel on cars and motorbikes visiting farmers, you know, every week in very expensive and potentially inefficient model. In a situation where most farmers today have mobile phones um, and understand how to actually work them and could be uh, could be trained to accept that these become as much a tool in agriculture as a spade and shovel, then the ability is going to be there to actually deliver farm extension and text messages, you know, prompting the the attention to detail that is necessary, or all the early warnings of pest invasions, of army worms, or things such as this, you know, to be you know, on the lookout for these characteristics at this time of year, you know, with potential uh, sodden spots of your of your site, or potentially pest interference, or discoloration of leaves with nutrient deficiencies. All these things can be warned, you know, you don't need to be visited to actually have this. So my sense, Alina, is that, you know, we would actually hope within the development context to actually perfect the art of taking a farm extension into a digital platform and then making it work with the people such as ours, with the, despite the challenges with illiteracy and numeracy. We're making progress. Uh, making Significant progress. An example, one of the crops we, we put into uh, source trace this year were green grounds. Traditionally, farmers uh, would probably in an acre get about 100 kilograms of green grounds. Okay. They're mung beans, okay? So, so in actual fact, the, the, the average we got this year was 200 kilos just simply for the fact that we were using the digital platform working with farmers and the, uh, the extension personnel uh, visiting the farmers using source trays to bring the farmer into a better understanding of the process they need to go through in growing the crop. To disseminate that information in an easily digestible form to put the information in the hands of the farmer. Exactly. You see, because the, the, the reality is you, you, you know, we and everybody else will have agronomists, but okay, you, you, the, the idea is to actually get the knowledge and capacity of the agronomist into the heads and the hands of the farmers. And look, the agronomist can't visit everybody, but Source Trace creates the ability for you to actually take all that capacity and spread it as widely as you can, you can actually get mobile coverage. Just another wonderful element of yours and B4D's work. Yeah, it is. It's sensational. John, it's extraordinary that from such modest beginnings, the projects in Kuala are now said to be beneficially impacting so many. One of the fundamental elements of business for development that is so impressive and that I adore is that it's the application of commercially astute business principles. It's the experience and the technical skills combined with such a genuine generosity of heart and compassion 
to alleviate poverty and to provide tr transformational change. In Australia, amongst our executives and in, in particular, and the businesses they represent, there is such an abundance of capabilities and creativity and ingenuity. From conversations I've had, there is also a large desire amongst many people to apply their commercial skills for the benefit of many upon an humanitarian basis. I hope your exceptional work and the enduring work of Business for Development serve as examples of what can be achieved by the Australian business community. It truly is a life legacy work. Thank you.